Good morning. It's very good to be here. Thank you for welcoming my family and myself so warmly. We always um, are appreciative of being here. And thank you for Pastor Dan, uh, to Pastor Dan, for giving me the opportunity to bring the word this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm 90. So if you could please open your Bible to the 90th Psalm. You don't know where the book of Psalms is, just open your Bible right in the middle, and you'll find it there. Psalm 90. This psalm has as its title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So let's listen to the Word of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening it withers away and dries up. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to might, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy you've shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that we have the liberty and the ability and the desire to gather, to be together Lord, to sing your praises, to pray for one another, to fellowship with one another. 
and to have your word read, to have your word explained, to have your word applied. Lord, we, we thank you that we can count on you as our God, as our dwelling place through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can enjoy the fellowship of one another and the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. And as we study things and meditate on things that are too deep for us to fully comprehend, we ask for the help of your Spirit. Help me to be able to speak clearly, to be able to convey some of what you've taught me as I studied this beautiful psalm, this precious psalm, Lord, and I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters as they listen. Lord, that they may be gripped, that they may be convicted, that they may be strengthened and edified by your word, because it's all your power and it's all your doing, any good work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 90 is the oldest of the Psalms. It was written by Moses sometime probably during Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness. They came out of the land of Egypt. They were supposed to take the land that God had promised them. They were afraid. They did not believe that God would give them that land, so God judged them. And as part of that judgment, they wandered around a wilderness for 40 years. So sometime during those 40 years, Moses wrote this psalm as he witnessed the death of that generation that came out of Egypt and did not believe God's promise regarding Israel's land. Moses lived several centuries before David and the other psalm writers. That's why it's the oldest psalm. And as such, it should not surprise us that it deals with very fundamental issues of human existence, life and death, the creation of the world, the creator of the universe. It is an ancient text. The book of Job, another ancient biblical text, similarly deals with the perplexities of life in a fallen world that we have here in Psalm 90. The psalm presses upon us the question of who or what we will look up to for answer, answers to the basic issues of our own existence and the created world around us. Now, you're well aware that we live in a culture that doesn't know where to get those answers or is careless about where they get their answers. And they act and live as if humans are left alone to their own devices. Just a few months ago, there were news titled, Humans Will Attain Immortality With the Help of Nanobots by 2030, claims former Google scientists. Humans will attain immortality with the help of nanobots by 2030, claims former Google scientist. And the first sentence in the article asks this question. Have you ever thought of living for years and years without worrying about dying? It adds later, we might be on the path to achieving it soon. We might be on the path to achieving it soon. Now think about this immortality by 2030. And we're in 2023. 
2023? My hands are enough. We get to 2030 and we've achieved immortality according to this line of thought. Such is the wishful thinking of fallen human beings in their feeble attempts to achieve what is clearly impossible for them. And our text tells us why this is impossible for mankind left to their own devices. It tells us who is the only source available for true, satisfying life eternal. And true life begins by doing precisely what men and women often resist. It begins by lifting our eyes to the Lord. You will notice that Lord is the first word in this prayer of Moses. Just like Adam and Eve after the fall, sinful mankind is found trying to hide from God instead of running to Him. They try to live apart from God instead of in fellowship with Him. But by God's grace, we who know the Lord Jesus, we know better. We know, like Moses did, that there is one and only one place where we can rest secure at all times, under all circumstances, and that place is the Lord God Himself. The place of our security is the Lord God Himself. My prayer this morning as we meditate on Psalm 90 is that we as believers in Christ realize the Lord is our dwelling place so that we may fix our hope in Him even in the most trying times. Here's the main point for this morning, that we as believers in Christ realize the Lord is our dwelling place so that we may fix our hope in Him even in the most trying times. So let us start by remembering the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. As a prayer, it begins by setting our focus squarely on the one who should be prayed to, the only true and living God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. The prayer begins with God, but not only begins with God, the whole psalm deals almost exclusively with thoughts about Him. Some of them are lofty thoughts, some are frightened thoughts, some are hopeful thoughts about who God is and what He does. And what is said in relationship to humans is mentioned according to what is said about God. And I'd like to do a brief survey of God and His actions in our psalm so that you can see this for yourself. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Verse 2, you brought forth, you are God. Verse 3, you turn, you say. Verse 4, in your sight. Verse 5, you have swept them. Verse 7, your anger, your wrath. Verse 8, 
before you in the light of your presence. Verse 9, your fury. Verse 11, your anger, your fury, the fear that is due you. Verse 12, you teach us, present to you a heart of wisdom. Verse 13, O Yahweh, be sorry for your slaves. Verse 14, you satisfy us your loving kindness. Verse 15, you make us glad. You have afflicted us. Verse 16, your work, your slaves, your majesty. And verse 17, the favor of the Lord our God. You establish the work of our hands. Humble, godly prayer looks up to God, blesses Him, recognizes who God is, fears Him, cries out to Him, pleads with Him, hopes in Him, finds its rest in Him. And the first question that must be asked, is our prayer life anything like Moses' prayer? Is the Lord at the center of our prayers? Is He our focus? If we were to listen to your personal private prayers, would they, are they filled with the name and the glory and the attributes of God? Or are we focused primarily on ourselves in our circumstances? The Lord Jesus taught his disciples the model prayer. They asked him to teach them to pray. And the first thing said is, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Do we desire to learn from the Son of God and from Moses, the man of God? The focus of their prayer is the Lord God, His glory, His purposes. And they had the conviction and the knowledge that our trials, which are very real, our trials, our needs, our sorrows, our joys, are all in the sovereign hands of Him who created all and who loves to the uttermost those whom he saves. And this knowledge should energize our prayer life. The Lord is our dwelling place, and we are most secure when we trust him and when we fix our eyes on him. Moses declares the Lord's gracious and continuous presence with his people. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. And to better understand the richness of what Moses meant by dwelling place, we can ask for the help of the next psalm, Psalm 91, where the same concept is found. And I'd like to read the first 10 verses in Psalm 91. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. 
He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of terror by night, or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness, or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And here in verse 9, we have the same word as used in Psalm 90. For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, and no plague will come near your tent. Moses was convinced the Lord was his hiding place, his shelter, his refuge, protection, and help. He trusted the Lord completely and knew that if God was Israel's dwelling place, they would be safe. But for how long would they be safe in the Lord? Is it the case that we can always trust Him? Isn't there a possibility of being momentarily exposed to unforeseen dangers? That's how we feel sometimes if we're honest with ourselves. Lord, I know you're my dwelling place, but it doesn't seem like it right now. Maybe there's been a problem here, and I'm not under your protection anymore. But Moses answers these questions by telling us the Lord is our dwelling place from generation to generation. There are no gaps in God's protection. In the words of Psalm 121, Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. Now, you and I, we can try to not sleep. Good luck with that. But he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. And Moses probably has in mind when he says from generation to generation, his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But he could be going farther back in time to Noah, for example. What we must grasp is that the Lord always takes care of his own throughout all generations, whether before or after a worldwide flood, whether entering Egypt as a family and leaving it as a multitude centuries later, or whether going through a wilderness en route to the promised land, the Lord has been the place of refuge and help for his people from generation to generation. And that's the case until now. But Moses does not stop there. He takes us all the way back to the creation of the world to show us it is impossible for God to fail his people. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world. I got a question. How many of you sitting here were witnesses when God created the world? You can raise your hand. I believe that's about zero. Do you know who was actually there? The Lord God. And not only was he there, he spoke 
and he created everything that exists with might and power. But you see, the created order, not even that gives us enough of a time scale to know how long God has existed or how long he will protect his people. That's why Moses says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It doesn't matter how far back in time we look, or even if it were possible for us to gaze outside of time, we would never reach a point when God was not. Moses takes us as far back as our human experience will let us in an attempt to explain and to marvel at God's eternality before the mountains were born. Anyone here ever been to the Grand Canyon or or a national park or been close to a volcano or some other impressive natural wonder? Most of us probably have. And you stand there and you you stand in awe. You're just in awe of those wonders. But even before any of that existed, that which causes you to be in awe, even before any of it existed, God was God. He was already God. Even from everlasting, God has no beginning. To everlasting, God has no end. You are God. He is, always has been, and will always be God. Whenever doubts come to our mind about whether God is for us, whether we can trust God always, let us take hold of the biblical truth that God is eternal. He will always exist. He will always be available to be the hiding place for his people, our shelter, our help, our refuge. You are God, proclaims Moses. There is no one like him. Well, what about the false gods of the nations? All of them lifeless idols who cannot do anything. What about the ideas, efforts, and pursuits of men? They're like nothing before the Lord. God issues a command, Return, O sons of men. And man inevitably turns back to dust, returns to that dust with which God created man. How strong men and women often feel, especially during the younger years. Death seems so far away. I mean, for, even for those who live longer and, and appreciate their older years, it's still tempting to think the length of our life is ultimately dependent upon us. Well, if I just eat healthy, if I exercise enough, if I refrain from this, if I keep on doing that, oh, please don't misunderstand me, we're not talking about the appropriate and proper care of ourselves and others. We're talking about our lives in the most basic sense. And we do need to ask, who has the power over life and over death in the ultimate sense? Who does? 
God. Him alone, not us. It is God, and make no mistake about this, it is God who turns man back into dust. It is him who says, return to dust, O sons of man. It is not fate, it is not luck, not accidents, not negligence, not overcaution. God alone has life and death in his sovereign hand. And I pray that this thought comforts you and guards your heart from being resentful with God's ways. We are in the hands of a good and sovereign God. And nothing can snatch us away from those powerful hands. Some of you today may be afraid of death. And to you I say, if the Lord Jesus is your Savior, you have nothing to fear. When the time comes for God to issue the command to turn you back into dust. The Lord is our dwelling place. Some of you may have suffered the untimely loss of a dear friend, a relative, even a most beloved child. And you may not understand why things have to be this way. You may be in immense pain, emotional turmoil even full of anxiety. But please know the eternal God works all things together for good for those who love Him. He is your refuge. He is your help in your time of need. The Lord has a different perspective compared to ours. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Because God is eternal, he sees time and the events within time in a different way from us mortals. Can you imagine living for 1,000 years? Methuselah in the book of Genesis lived 969 years. But some of us cannot even trace our ancestry a thousand years back. I don't even know if Ortiz is my real last name. In El Salvador, fathers would go and just write down kind of the name that they liked. So I cannot trace my ancestry a thousand years back. If we think in the year 1023, a thousand years ago, Where was the United States? Didn't exist. There was no printing press. There were no phones of any kind, smart or otherwise. And if I had the ability to provide you with real tickets to spend a day in, in say, England in the year 1023, can you imagine how many people would be all over me for those tickets? I can picture especially that the children Jumping up and down for a ride there. I want to go to the year 1023. We marvel just at the thought of experiencing that length of time. But if I then tell you, oh, sorry, misunderstanding, tickets have changed. These are tickets to be in the same place you were yesterday. Now that's quite different. Now some people may still want the tickets. But they certainly will not command the wonder of a thousand years. And by just this 
small thought exercise, we get a glimpse of God's view of human time and history. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night at this time was just a few hours. Our years are like a blink of an eye before God. In this psalm, the terms hours, days, and years seem almost interchangeable. Verse 4, a thousand years like a day, a theme the Apostle Peter picks up in his second letter in the New Testament. Verses 5 and 6, our lifespans are compared to the morning and the evening. Verse 9, our days decline, we finish our years. Verse 10, the days of our life contain 70 years. Verse 15, according to the days and the years. It forces us to agree with the conclusion in verse 10, soon it is gone, for soon it is gone. Human lives come and go, even a thousand years like Methuselah almost reached, but it is all gone while God remains from everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing, holy God. And because God never ceases to be God, He will always act in holiness, righteousness, and justice. Habakkuk chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? Your eyes are too pure to see evil. Your eyes are too pure to see evil. And there lies our problem. Mankind has sinned. Humanity has done evil in God's, in God's sight. And he who never sleeps sees it all. Verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. It is all laid bare before the blazing light of God's presence. And it's noteworthy to me that in verse 8, the word sin is actually not used in the original Hebrew, only the word for secret. Are secrets in the light of your presence. It is a terrible witness against humanity that when referring to human secrets, we have to admit that what is found in the secret heart of man is sinful. What is found in the secret heart of man is a horrible rebellion against his creator. Now, Moses speaking specifically of the unfaithful Israelite generation who did not believe God and who failed to take the promised land. But the unfaithfulness that characterized them is true of all mankind. It's a point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 5. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, that would be Adam, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, that would be all mankind, spread to all men because all sinned. And it is no wonder then that Moses plunges into a lament in the middle of this psalm, almost in despair, reflecting on God's eternality and holiness right next to men's frailty and sinfulness. Verse 5, you have swept them away like a flood. Torrential waters being pictured as a semblance of God moving swiftly in judgment. They fall asleep. No chance of survival. No significance in view of God's judgment. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the wilderness, the Israelites early in the morning would see grass sprouting all over the land, taking advantage of whatever water was in the area. But as the early morning turned to full day, the grass had no chance of remaining. Verse 6, in the morning it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening it withers away and dries up. In less than a day, the grass is gone, and just as quickly are people gone according to God's eternal timeline. And Moses gives us the reason why this happens in verses 7 and 9. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. For all our days have declined in your fury. The Bible gives us a clear picture of the reason why this world is cursed and why there is toil, death, and suffering. The eternal God is a holy judge who pours out his anger, wrath, and fury over sinful men. This is a sobering reality. It's a, a fear-inspiring truth that prompts Moses to cry out in verse 11, Who knows the power of your anger and of your fury according to the fear that is due you? And the answer to that question is no one. No human whatsoever knows this apart from Christ. No one knows the extent and the power of God's anger. His fury is so great that it is compared to the fear that is due him. As the fear that is due you, so is your wrath. If sinful men tremble in great fear at the prospect of God's judgment, they're just beginning to grasp God's wrath, to get a glimpse, a small understanding of his wrath. Now, to explain this a lot better than I can, I'll turn to Spurgeon. He had eloquent, if, if frightful, words for verse 11. You know well he was a master of piercing language. Spurgeon wrote regarding verse 11 in Psalm 90, Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses a hyperbole. It would be impossible to exaggerate it. 
Whatever feelings of pious awe and holy trembling may move the tender heart, it is never too much moved. Apart from other considerations, the great truth of the divine anger, when most powerfully felt, never impresses the mind with a solemnity in excess of the legitimate result of such a contemplation. What the power of God's anger is in hell and what it would be on earth were it not in mercy restrained, no man living can rightly conceive. Modern thinkers rail at Milton and Dante, Bunyan and Baxter for their terrible imagery. But the truth is that no vision of poet or denunciation of holy seer can ever reach to the dread height of this great argument, much less go beyond it. The wrath to come has its horrors rather diminished than enhanced in description by the dark lines of human fancy. It baffles words. It leaves imagination far behind. Beware ye that forget God, lest he tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. God is terrible out of his holy places. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Korah and his company. Mark well the graves of lust in the wilderness. Nay, rather bethink ye of the place where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Who is able to stand against this justly angry God? Who will dare to rush upon the bosses of his buckler or tempt the edge of his sword? Be it ours to submit ourselves as dying sinners to this eternal God who can even at this moment command us to the dust and thence to hell. End of quote. Humanity is but dust. We finish our years like a sigh. Even when we get to live a full life in terms of human years, 70 years, if due to might, 80 years, or even a few years beyond, their strength is still consumed in hard labor, vanity, wickedness. It's all soon gone. Like a bird who quickly flies away, so human life is gone. Is there hope for mankind? What can we do? How can we escape God's anger? We can only do what Moses does from the very beginning of this psalm. We turn to the Lord, we run to Him, recognizing He is our dwelling place, our hiding place, our place of refuge, shelter, and help. In verse 12, after that piercing question of verse 11, Moses prays. He lifts his eyes once again to the Lord and prays, so teach us. In light of all that's been said, so teach us. Lord, 
considering who you are, the eternal, all-powerful, holy God, considering your righteous and fearful judgments, I ask you to please, Lord, be my teacher. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Moses looks up to the very one whom he just declared to be angry and furious with his people. Moses turns to him, the one who is full of wrath. How can this be? What do we do when we find somebody that's completely angry at us? What do we do? We run away. What do we do when we're the ones who are angry at somebody else? What do we want them to do? To run away? So how can Moses turn to the Lord when he just said that we have been consumed by your anger and that our days have declined in his fury? Because Moses knows something about the character of the true and living God that only believers know. Moses knows his God. And that's why he knows the only place to turn to be saved from God's wrath is God himself. The God who judges rightly in great wrath is at the same time the God who is willing, able, and desirous to teach, extend mercy, embrace, forgive the very creatures who rebelled against him without cause. The thought of a God who judges severely is despised by unrepentant sinful men. But the child of God, the child of God knows the righteous judge is also his hiding place. The righteous judge is our hiding place. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus spoke some things that seemed very difficult words to those following him. And the Bible says there, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord Jesus, we cannot go anywhere but to you. Peter knew the Son of God, who is rightly to be feared, and from whom many in this instance walked away. Peter knew he was the merciful Son in whom there is life eternal, there is protection and there is truth. The Lord is our dwelling place. Moses understood this. Peter understood this. And as we today understand the eternality, the power, and the anger of God, we too need to lift our eyes to the Lord and humbly ask Him to teach us, to be our teacher. Verse 12, 
So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We should pray, dear Lord, please help me see my own insignificance in light of eternity. Teach me life is fleeting like grass which sprouts for a day, like a sigh, and help me to live wisely for you in this fallen, suffering world. We must come humbly before the Lord. And we have an example of this. When young King Solomon had a dream and God spoke to him, ask what I should give to you, Solomon answered, So now, O Yahweh my God, you have made your slave king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your slave is in the midst of your people which you have chosen a numerous people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your slave a listening heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this glorious people of yours? And the Bible says, And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to listen to justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. Solomon, as a young man, asked for a heart of wisdom as Moses prays in this psalm. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days happen and the years draw near in which you will say, I have no delight in them. Our days on earth will soon come to an end. And even if we live a long life, humanly speaking, our physical strength will fail, our mental ability will decline, our influence among men will abate. So let's ask ourselves, are we living our hours, our days and years in view of eternity? Can you reflect on what you did yesterday or this past week or the previous months and examine the pattern of your life throughout the years? Can you say you have lived for the Lord? Can you say you have lived to please the Lord? Now, we all fall short. None of us have considered our finiteness and God's eternity as seriously as we should. But we now know what we need to do. We need to lift our eyes to heaven and ask, Teach us, Lord, to number our days on earth that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. 
Moses knew the character of the God who was Israel's dwelling place. That's why he lifts his eyes up to him and cries out for mercy in verse 13. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. Moses knew his position in relationship to God. He rightly considers himself the Lord's slave, the lowliest servant. But he asks Yahweh by name, Return, O Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Return, relent from your punishment, and be sorry for your slaves. Have mercy on us. Moses knew the character of his God. He knew that God would be merciful to them when the people would humbly ask him for it. Moses also asked, how long will it be? He's aware that if God does not turn back from his righteous judgment toward, towards Israel, they'll never make it to the promised land. Please, Lord, Turn back to us in kindness. Verse 14, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Morning is mentioned again in verse 14. When it was mentioned in verses 5 and 6, it's bleak. The morning grass withers away, dries up by evening. But when the morning is mentioned in verse 14 in relation to God, it's a completely different picture. Instead of lasting a little, it lasts for a long time. That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And these are long days, as will be mentioned in a moment. Instead of the labor and wickedness of human years, we find satisfaction and meaning, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Instead of being consumed and dismayed by God's anger, we sing for joy and be glad all our days. Sin brought the decree of death over humanity, but we can get a glimpse, a hint of the resurrection in verses 15 and 17. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Now why would I say that this is a hint of the resurrection? Because while it is true that Moses is talking about the wilderness generation in Israel, the only way to have the long-lasting gladness and establishment of our work which accords to and even surpasses the years of affliction and evil is through a resurrected, indestructible life. That's how we can see and be satisfied with God's loving kindness and sing for joy all our days and be glad according to the days of our affliction and have our work established. And Moses finishes by praying for the Lord to bestow his grace, his favor, his beauty, his power, and his majesty over him and his people. 
Verse 16, let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let your power be shown in favor of your people. You took us out from the land of Egypt with, with signs and wonders. Lord, may we see again your powerful work on our behalf. We want our children to see your glory, your majesty, to be in awe of the God of their fathers. In verse 17, let the favor, and that word for favor can be translated grace, beauty. Let the favor, grace, and beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. To contemplate the favor and beauty of the Lord is every believer's heart desire. David says this in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of Yahweh. The Lord himself is our dwelling place. And we can be certain that we will always find delight and satisfaction in him when morning comes and the night of labor and suffering has passed. We pray with Moses in verse 17 that our lives may have significance, may have permanence, that our lives may not wither away in wastefulness, vain labor, and wickedness. That's what it means. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Remember in Psalm 91, it was declared in verse 9, For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. After having said that the psalm ends in verses 15 and 16, He will call upon me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in His distress. I will rescue Him and honor Him. With a long life I will satisfy Him and I will show Him my salvation. Anyone who loves and puts his trust in the eternal, omnipotent, holy God will find protection, will find help, and a long and satisfied life, and they will find the salvation of God. The Lord Jesus personally told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the same wilderness which serves as the backdrop of Psalm 90, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The Lord Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was buried, 
rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and one day will come back to judge and to save. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He is the one sent by God to be the dwelling place of his people where we may be safe from the wrath of God. Of the Lord Jesus, Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. We just read this in Psalm 90. But then Psalm 2 says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord is our dwelling place. Turn in repentance and faith to the very one who is angry at iniquities and sins that you may find refuge in him. And for the people of God who already know the blessing of salvation in Jesus, may we fervently ask the Lord to teach us to number our days honor and trust him always as our dwelling Let's pray. Lord, who knows the power of your anger and your fury by which we dismay? Lord, we can only do what Moses did and turn to you and ask you to have mercy. And we praise you and thank you that we have found mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that in him we do not fear your wrath anymore, but we have peace with you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we can say, as the Apostle Paul did in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of God? And we are convinced, as he was, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. Even so, Lord, we pray with Moses that you teach us to number our days on earth so that we may have a heart of wisdom. And we thank you that you are our teacher. We thank you that you are our God from everlasting to everlasting. And we praise your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen.